Well, it is Christmas Eve morning, which is also this year the final Sunday of Advent. Christmas is indeed tomorrow. I hope that you have had uh, sufficient time to wrap all the presents and to do all of your grocery shopping. We tried to get all the grocery shopping done so that we don't have to go into that that forsaken Walmart one more time. <laughs> My goodness, like we went, there, went in there the other day and the line, I've never seen lines like that before. I thought I was at Bush Gardens there for a minute. Hopefully you've gotten all that done. Hopefully you've mailed out all your cards or brought all of your cards to the baskets. Um, please make sure to check those on your way out this morning. Really, thank you so much to Sue and to Laura and to those who have managed to maintain that this year. You all have done a great job and it is a gift to your church. So thank you for that so much. Yes, thank you. Speaking of presents, we will be wrapping up our sermon series here this morning from Isaiah. Thank you for the rim shot there, Jeff. Uh, we've been looking at some of the famous quotes from Isaiah concerning Jesus that we, that we find in the New Testament, but we've been trying to look at them in their original context. So we've been going back to Isaiah and looking through chapter 7 and 8 and 9, and now this morning we'll be in chapter 11. And we've been highlighting some of the things there that you don't typically talk about at Christmas time. We've been trying to look at these quotes in their original context. I made a statement back in the first week of the series a few weeks ago that um, you're not going to find the harder things from Isaiah in a Christmas card. Do you remember me saying that? Well, I want you to know that, yes, um, what I said is true. Typically, when you go to a Christmas card, to get a Christmas card, a, Chris, a Christian Christmas card, you'll find quotes there from Isaiah about light and promises and, um, you know, a, a, a child born, a son given. Um, but you're not going to find things about, you know, judgment or some of the harder truths from these passages. But I have been proven wrong. Because I received a Christmas card this week from our, um, our young adult group here. They call themselves late gen. So late gen young adults. They made a Christmas card for me and I'm going to show it to you. I know you can't see it very well, so I'm going to read it, read to you what it says. Uh, there's a picture of, of them, Jordan and Courtney and David and Patrick there on the front uh, representing that ministry. And the card says, those who refuse the light given to them, the coming of Emmanuel signifies their doom. Merry Christmas from late Jen. <laughs> and then, of course, on the back, they, uh, they found a picture of me, and they edited it. I think it's edited because it has red laser beams shooting out of my eyes. So, uh, so touche. I have been proven wrong. <laughs> Signs of the season. A stone of offense on whom you can build your life. A child who is both polarizer and peacemaker. The light of God that exposes sin but reveals grace. And now, this morning, a scepter representing the reign of the most unlikely of kings. If you would turn with me into Isaiah chapter 11, uh, we'll be on page 557 if you grabbed one of those guest Bibles back there. And together, let's look at the first nine verses of this chapter. Isaiah 11, beginning of verse 1. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. 
and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt, and truth like an undergarment. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and the little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. The messianic hope that we find in Isaiah, beginning back in chapter 7, that began to develop and be amplified in in chapters 8 and 9, have now, here in chapter 11, come to full flower. Because the one that has been promised, the one who has been announced, is now being depicted as ruling. And so in place of of a fallen house of David, in place of a conspiring kingdom of Israel, in place of a wicked and invading, oppressive Assyrian regime, Isaiah envisions the reign of a king whose kingdom is unlike any other kingdom in all the world. If you didn't detect that in, in those verses, I don't know what else we can do for you this morning. I mean, he's des- Isaiah is describing a, a situation in the world that is unlike anything any of us have ever experienced. And indeed, this king has a kingdom that is from another world. God's promise to David will not be thwarted by David's descendants. And that is indeed what, is, what seems to be happening here in the time of Isaiah as the, the last of David's dynasty, hum, his human dynasty, has come to ruin. By God's sovereign hand, instead, a greater son of Jesse, that would be David's father. It's a way of, of still talking about the same genealogy, the same line of promise, but, but taking the emphasis off David because of what David's house has become. And so we hear Jesse's name invoked, but it's the same promise. The promise to David is to his father and his family, those who come from from these faithful people. And God's promise to David will not be thwarted. Instead, a greater son of Jesse will himself be the fulfillment of these promises. Yes to Israel. Yes to Judah. But as we see in the text here and, and in the verses that follow, not just to a local region, a small group of people in a little part of the world, or to one particular family, but to all the world. But I want to take a moment, if we could, and we're not going to be able to do this with every verse because there's nine of them, and and when you see how long we're going to camp out in just the first verse, you'll be thankful that we're not going to do this with all nine verses. But I want to take a moment and zoom in on verse one and look at some of the curious language there that at least caught my attention and, and just sort of reflect on it for a few moments. He says, there just the first half of verse 11, out of the stump of David's family. Now that's an interesting word, isn't it? The word stump. You know, I've, I've been thinking about that word this week, and I've been thinking about stumps that I, that I remember in 
just even in recent years, living here uh, in the, the wonderful fishbowl of the parsonage uh, in the middle of the parking lot. Um, over the last decade, uh, we've seen many trees here on campus come and go. Um, many of you remember there was once a great pecan tree that sat right between my driveway and the parking lot. And uh, let me clarify for you North Carolinians, um, they're also known as pecan trees, all right? It's pretty sad when that's the only applause the preacher gets on a Sunday morning is when you mispronounce the word pecan. Um, but for your sake, I will say pecan. And in my notes, I do have two E's there just so I make sure I say it the right way. Um, it is a, a pecan tree to you uh, natives here in the area. But yeah, there was once a great pecan tree that sat there. And I remember those, those nuts lying around everywhere. And so you would come and gather them and make, make things with them. Uh, but it, there, a time came when that tree just it had to go. Many of you who, uh, who have been here for many years, um, far longer than I was here, some of you have been here decades, uh, some of you uh, nearly your entire lives, or many of you your whole lives, you've been here. You may recall once upon a time this entire campus used to be wooded. It was, it was like a forest almost, and there were trees everywhere, and, and many, many of them have, have had to be cut down over the years in order to have you know, these buildings and the fields and the, thing, the parking lots and all those things. What happens when you cut down a tree? What is left behind? A stump. There used to be a couple of them in my yard, trees that had gotten old and were dying. And uh, so the guys came and they chopped the tree down and there was one stump that sat there for a while. And I, I still have pictures on my, my phone, perhaps, or my computer of my kids, you know, this big, you know, standing on the stumps, dressing, dressed up in their costumes or the outfits, whatever they're doing, and just in their sort of make-believe world, uh, stumps all around. And, and those stumps will literally sit there for what seems like forever. Unless someone comes along and gets one of those machines and grinds those things. Have you ever watched that happen? I, I watched them do that in our yard one time, and all I could think was, man, I'm glad my foot's not under there. I'm not near that thing, because that thing can, man, that's amazing what they, that thing can do. So unless you grind it up, it's going to sit there forever, and it's going to take the long you know, many years of decay and deterioration for that stump to finally go away. And it will go away. But you know what won't happen? That tree is not going to regrow. At least not that I've ever seen. I've never seen a stump that has sat there dead and then suddenly a tree grows out of. I've never seen that before. That's typically not what happens. It, Isaiah's tough word for the forest of David's dynasty is that be, because it has become so wicked, because it has become so rebellious and has turned so far from Yahweh, God has chopped it down. And it's true from Isaiah's perspective, chronologically speaking, that hasn't happened yet. It's about to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. So time-wise, okay, it's true. But remember what we said last week, we talked about that sort of prophetic perfect tense where the, the prophets could, could talk about things that have yet to happen as if they have already happened. And that's because when God says something, it's as good as done. God has cut down the forest of David's dynasty. And it's amazing to me because that seems like pretty bad news. But there's good news amidst the bad news. Because the good news in the first part of this verse here, of our, of our text here, is that out of the stumps of David's fallen, failed dynasty, something unexpected, something impossible is going to happen. 
a fresh shoot will grow. Last week, we talked about the light of God that comes to a people in darkness. But here, if we were to maintain that metaphor, it would be like saying, yes, the light comes to the darkness, but it's almost as if it would be here, the light comes out from the darkness. Or to stick with with the metaphor of chapter 11, we see the shoot coming from the stump. It's interesting, isn't it? That from the place of deadness, from the place of judgment, from the place of impossibility, we see We see something happening, that God is beginning his greatest work right from the center of the problem. It's it's right at the source, right at, dare we say, the root. God is doing something amazing, and that's something that only he can do, right? Only God can bring life out of deadness. Only God can produce shoots from stumps. Only God can shine light out from the darkness, and that's because only God has the power to truly transform Some of you, many of you, I hope, remember back in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, we've been there before and we've referenced that that passage over the years. Um, Paul says there uh, what we all know just from day-to-day life. When you walk into a dark room and you you flick on the light switch, uh, what happens? Well, he says, when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible, right? Light enables things to be seen as they really are. There may be some, some of you who maybe once upon a time back in the 90s watched that show uh, Seinfeld, that comedy on TV that eight or nine seasons long. Uh, some of you may recall the episode uh, where Jerry um, had, a, had a girlfriend who looked different every time he saw her, right? He called her the Two-Face, like the, the Batman villain, right? Who, you know, the Batman villain, of course, had literal one face, but it was like two totally different faces. But this, this girl she was dating, depending on the lighting, she would either look one way or look another way, right? So for, for for this relationship, it was like whatever, it all depended upon the light. You know, if the light is bad, if the light is good, then we're good. And that's because light reveals. Light makes things visible. Light, light allows you to see things and to understand things as they really are. We know that to be true from day-to-day life. But then Paul will also say in the exact same chapter that at one time you, that is those who have come to a saving knowledge of Christ, he says, once you were darkness. In other words, darkness so characterized you, that is, an absence of a knowledge of God, um, the absence of his righteousness and his holiness, you were separated from God, and as a result of that, you yourself were darkness. And yes, the light has come, and it has revealed that truth to you, and you've been exposed But Paul takes it a step further. He says, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Which tells us what? Yes, light exposes. But light also transforms. It transforms. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Salvation for Judah must come from outside itself. Right? The house of David has fallen. It has been cut down in judgment from God. There's nothing that anyone can do about it. They are utterly helpless to save themselves. They need salvation to come from without. But what, what Isaiah is seeing here with the eyes of a prophet is that, yes, salvation must come from without, but it begins from within. 
God is not content to just sort of chip away at the rough exterior in, in the hopes that might, he might someday finally get down you know, to the core of where the problem is. No, what Isaiah is saying, God goes right to the heart of things. He begins his work right in the core of where the problem resides. He himself, from the outside, he is not in the fallen line of David. God is outside of that. God is outside of his creation. He is the only source of hope for this fallen ruined people. God must come from outside, but he will come through the fallen line. It's interesting, isn't it? This idea that salvation comes from without, but it begins deep within. And in the same way, all of humanity's salvation must come from outside of itself. All salvation must come from beyond us because we are more than just a fallen or failed dynasty. No, we are a fallen, failed, ruined race. The human race is ruined. We are broken. There's nothing we can do to repair ourselves. There's nothing within ourselves to make things right. We must have a source of salvation that comes from outside of us. And yet we find that in Christ, the one who is outside has come to begin his work within. God became man. And his spirit, who breathes life into the deadness of the human soul, is the life-giving power of the new birth, regenerating individuals from the inside out. Because that's how God works. And only he can work that way. It's amazing how much truth resides in just half a verse. And I told you I wasn't going to do this for every verse. Maybe someday. Maybe someday we'll take six months and go through uh, every verse of Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. But it's not going to be today. Because I want to zoom back out for a minute. So we zoomed in. We pulled this little nugget of truth about the way that God works. And then we're going to zoom back out. Because when we do, and, and we take a moment to sort of reflect on the totality of these chapters, it's interesting to compare the language of judgment we find here for both Judah and Assyria. Now, we haven't said much about God's judgment on Assyria yet because we hadn't come to that point, really, because you find that there in chapter 10. Yes, 7, 8, and 9, we learn that Assyria will be God's tool or God's instrument of judgment for Judah, but they themselves are not exempt from his wrath, are they? If we were to go back and look in chapter 10, in fact, the NLT labels a whole section of that chapter. Um, if I can actually turn the page here, these little pages sometimes can be hard to turn. Um, a whole section has the heading, Judgment Against Assyria. Interesting. Yes, he's using them as an instrument of judgment for, for Judah, but they themselves will not be exempt from his wrath. Verses 5 and 6 says God is sending Assyria the rod of his anger against Judah. But then in verse 18, the Lord will consume Assyria's glory. Like a fire consumes a forest in a fruitful land. It will waste away like sick people in a plague. Isaiah seems really interested in these forest metaphors. You have one forest that's going to be chopped down. You have another that's going to be burned up and consumed. No one, no one is safe from the wrath of God against all sin. But there's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference between the judgment of God on Judah and the judgment of God on Assyria. And that difference is not due to 
you know, military power. It's not due to financial resources. It's not due to superior diplomacy or to uh, political savvy. Um, When Assyria is destroyed, uh, we know from history that it was destroyed in 609 BC. When it is destroyed, we know that nothing ever arose from their stumps. Right, This this once great empire that had a stranglehold over the ancient Mesopotamian uh, civilization for 700 years, um, seemingly overnight, this entire empire collapses, never to be seen or heard from again. But at the same time, from the stumps of Judah will come the hope of a kingdom that will never end. What is the difference? Is Is it their resources? Is it their military? Is it all those things that we tend to look to for the security of a nation, the establishment of a a culture, of a civilization, of an empire? No. The difference is the promise and the power and the presence of God. That is the difference. One of the themes that gets developed throughout the Old Testament is the difference between, um, is that, that the difference between the ordinary and the extraordinary is not degrees of human capacity, right? It's, it's the enabling power of God. And you can see this theme all throughout the Old Testament. Going, go back to uh, the creation of the tabernacle. You remember the, the first person we're told in the Bible that was filled with the Holy Spirit was, do you remember his name? Does anybody remember the name of the one who designed the tabernacle? Here's Bible trivia. Bezalel. Yeah, bet you didn't have that one on your bingo card, did you? He was the first to, to be filled with the Spirit. He designed the tabernacle. Or, or you remember Samson in his incredible strength. You remember names like Saul and, and David and the establishment and the success, well, to a limited degree for Saul, but definitely for David, of their, of their rules. And you wonder what was the difference for each of these people, whether it was someone designing a tabernacle or someone who has superhuman strength or, or it was one given uh, the wisdom in, in the the Uh, the rule to to lead people in a way that pleases God, in a way that establishes the the purposes and the rule of God in the world, what is the difference? Well, it's the supernatural aid of the Holy Spirit. That is the common denominator among all these individuals, and that is a theme that is developed throughout the Old Testament, that he enables ordinary people to act beyond normal human capacity to do the things that God has in mind for them to do. And so, with that theme in mind, what does Isaiah say about this one who is coming? What is is that factor that marks him as unique? What is going to be the difference between him and his kingdom and, well, the one that is is falling, the ones that are all around, the ones that seem to be established and have success? What is the difference? Why should his kingdom be any different than any other kingdom in all the world? Well, the answer is the beginning of verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Now, where else in your mind can you remember ever hearing a, a phrase like that? How about uh, in John chapter 1, when Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist? Do you remember what the baptizer said there in verse 32? He said, what did he see? He said, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove straight from heaven, and it rested on him. In other words, John witnessed with his eyes what Isaiah could only see 
with the the eyes of of a prophet. And that word that we translate rest is the Greek word meno, which means not just to sort of hang out for a moment. It's the word that means he remained. It's a word that is translated like dwell or abide. It's this idea that whatever is happening here, it is a state that has begun, but that continues. In other words, it's a way of saying the Holy Spirit descended like a dove from heaven and it rested upon him. It settled within him. It's this idea that he came and he stayed. And to everyone else there, and actually even John the Baptist at first, there was nothing visible about this man that marked him as different from anyone else. He's just another guy. There's nothing impressive about him. There's nothing extraordinary about him. There's nothing, there's nothing about his physical characteristics that cause anyone to sort of take a second look at him. In fact, Isaiah himself says this back uh, later in chapter 53, verse 2. He says, My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot. So this is the same idea, this, this shoot this from the root of Jesse, this one that comes up like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful. There was nothing majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. And that's why, no matter how great a job he does, Jonathan Rumi can never be an accurate depiction of Jesus. Because the guy is just far too good looking. He is. He's got like perfect white teeth. Who had perfect white teeth in the first century? Did, any, did anybody have perfect? Who knows? I mean, and he's like six three or something. I mean, he's just like this impressive man. And Isaiah, well, Isaiah says there's nothing impressive about him physically. There's nothing majestic. There's nothing beautiful. And I I don't say this to in any way disrespect the Lord Jesus Christ. My point is that is not the way God works in the world. Jesus didn't show up at an impressive six foot three with beautiful white teeth and a handsome face that caused everyone to take a double take. No, he was ordinary. There was something common about him. Doesn't mean he was necessarily what we would deem ugly, but he didn't come in the way you would expect him to come. And to anyone else, Jesus of Nazareth was an ordinary guy, but you and I know there was something extraordinary about him, don't we? You and I know from the scriptures what makes him unique. It's not how he looked, but it's that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And that at the beginning of his ministry, that same spirit descended like a dove and remained on him. So that the totality of his person and his work would be marked by the promise and the power and the presence of God. Indeed, Emmanuel himself is the promise and the power and the presence of God. The fulfillment of all of God's promises from Abraham to David and to you and me. The source of all life, the source of all salvation that comes right to the heart of where it's needed most. God himself in human flesh Restoring humanity from the inside out, establishing a kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, which is a, for you and me today, it's not a political kingdom. No, it is a a righteous reign of God 
in the hearts of people from every tribe and tongue. If we, if we had kept reading, verse 10 will say that, that this coming one would be a banner of salvation to all the nations, not just to Judah, not just to Israel, not just to people in that region, but to every region, to every people. He is a banner of salvation. And Paul will later pick up this theme in Romans 15, and he'll say, this root of Jesse, yes, this descendant, biologically, genealogically, from, from David, from Jesse's line, we got to establish that because that was a promise from God. Yes, he's a promise to the, the, the Old Testament people of God, but Paul says, this root of Jesse, he will rule over the Gentiles who put their hope on him. That's you and me. Isaiah saw it too, as we read a moment ago in verse 9. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. That's all who put their hope on him. Have you done that today? Have you put your hope on him? Is he the promise and the power and the presence of God for you? Can he come, can he himself personally come by your invitation into the darkness, into the deadness of your heart? Is he, does he, do you give him permission by putting your faith in him to produce his light, to produce his life in you? You know, the gospels tell us that you know, like, a, like a seed falls to the earth and dies and is buried in the ground, it does so that new life might begin in the darkness. Isn't it interesting how God has woven into the very fabric of nature these deeper spiritual supernatural truths? Because Jesus, the, the, the source of life, died and was buried in the ground. And from the darkness of the tomb, the light of eternal life began to shine. And when we put our trust in him, Paul says in Romans 8, 11, he says that the very same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives, abides, remains in you. It's the same spirit, the same life-giving, resurrection power spirit of God. The one who descended and remained upon Jesus, marking the totality of his life and his ministry, wants to descend upon and remain in you and in me so that the totality of our lives would be marked by his presence, that he would empower us beyond our capabilities. John the Baptist, next quote, the next thing he said after rightly identifying Jesus, after seeing with his eyes the Spirit descend and remain upon this one that was being baptized, the very next thing he says is that the one on whom the Spirit descends and rests is the one who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That your life would be immersed into him as he comes and dwells in you, as he does his work from the inside out. He's not coming to, to put a band-aid on your, the boo-boos of your life. He's coming to give you life out of death, that he would come to breathe life into your, the deadness of your heart. He would come to shine light in the darkness, not just that you have, but the darkness that you are. The same spirit that empowered the Son of God is the same spirit at work in you. His life his salvation, his power, his holiness, the love that he is at work in you from the inside out. He is the difference between Judah and Assyria. He is the difference between hope 
and judgment, between fruitfulness and barrenness. He is the difference between life and death. And he will be the difference for you as he is for all who call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Jesus Christ, the son of Mary, the son of David, the son of God, the babe of of Bethlehem is that stone upon which you, you must build your life. He is that son who alone provides peace between God and man. He is the light that reveals the reality of ultimate reality himself, who reveals, who makes the Father known and transforms us from darkness into light. And he is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, the very promise and power and presence of God in the world. Behold, church, the signs of the season and receive by faith Emmanuel as Savior and Lord today. Let us pray. Lord, we've done our our very best to, to allow the scriptures to guide and direct the focus of our hearts over these coming weeks. And it is true that no matter how hard we try, there's still a a world, there's still a flesh, there's still a devil that would love nothing more than to distract and deceive and redirect our focus on, onto things that are not of you. Lord, I pray that in these final moments of this sermon and of this series and, and of this season that, um, that we would take advantage of this opportunity in these moments we have here to fix our eyes on you. To, to be directed by the truth of your word. To who you really are and what you've really done and what you want to do in us. Lord, would you come into the darkness of my heart? Would you expose anything there that is not of you? And not just on the surface of my heart, Lord, May your light penetrate deep into the dark recesses of who I am. May your light so expose what is there that there's no part of me that is hidden from you. And even more, Lord, would you, would you change me so that I'm different than I was before. So that I'm less like me and more like you. I think John the Baptist may have said it best. He must increase and I must decrease. Not that so we become less ourselves, but that we become more what you envision for us to be. Lord, we are your masterpiece. And you had something in mind from before the world began for us to be and something for us to do. And we've spent so much time crafting our identity finding our, our place in this world based on things that, that are things of the world and not things of heaven. But Lord, you, you saw us and loved us from before all time. And you want us to find our identity exclusively in, in you. So Lord, may that be what happens in these moments. May we, 
May we have the boldness and the faith to repent and to turn from our darkness, from our grasping, from our taking our lives into our own hands, of our indulgence in, in the flesh and of the world. And may we turn from those things with intentionality and face you. And we know that salvation cannot come from us. It has to come from outside. But praise be to God, you want to come right into our hearts and bring the healing and the forgiveness and the holiness and the purpose that only you are and can produce. Lord, come and do that in our hearts today, we pray. And be glorified through it all in Jesus' name. Amen.